You're listening to Word and Spirit with Pastor James Beauvais of Calvary Anaheim. To find out more, go to calvaryanaheim.org. And now, here's Pastor James. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 11. 1 Samuel 11. The children of Israel have demanded a king and God has permitted that. And you remember that Saul was selected and there's been all kinds of miracles to confirm his selection as he's been interacting with Samuel. And then Saul in our last chapter was finally anointed uh, or actually he was publicly chosen to be the king of Israel. And God touched certain people's hearts to follow after Saul. And others said, who's this guy? (laughs) And they they didn't think he was qualified or should be king. And Saul just let that go. And then Samuel just sent everybody home. And so it's kind of an awkward place to be, huh? You know, if you're Saul and you've been chosen as king and the whole crowd was chanting, long live the king, and then the day ended and you're like, what now? (laughs) Do I give an order? Do I give a command? And so all he does is go home and keep working until God does his thing. And that's where we come in here in 1 Samuel 11, is Saul's just you know, at home, going about his business, waiting on what God's going to do next. And so let's read about it. First Samuel 11, verse 1, Then Nahash the Ammonite. Now, the Ammonites were descendants of a guy named Ben-Ami. And this was uh, the son of Lot's younger daughter. So you might remember that Lot was Abraham's nephew. And... He got involved with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were really immoral. God judged them. And Lot was left with his two daughters. And they're like, we're the only ones left in the world. And so basically they get him drunk and they take turns with him that night. And the younger one gets pregnant with Ben-Ami. And he's the father of the Amorites. So these people, groups, are related to one another. They're all related to Abraham. And so This guy, this king Nahash the Ammonite, came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead. Now, Jabesh-Gilead was on the east side of the Jordan River. You may remember that Moses came in and there was a couple of kings on the east side of the Jordan River, Og and King Zion, and uh, they came against the Israelites, so they fought against them and the Israelites defeated them. And then the... uh, the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh said, hey, we love this land. Let's stay here. It's great for our cows, and we got lots of cows. So they stayed there, and so Jabesh-Gilead is then on the east side of the Jordan in this region, in the region of Gad. And it says, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on 
all Israel. Wow, now there's a nice guy. And so the Ammonites just came and surrounded this city of Jabesh-Gilead, and they knew we're toast. We, we, can't, we can't fight against them, or at least they thought that. But there's no indication that they're turning to God. They're looking for him for help. They're crying out to him. They've just said, we're dead, man. The best thing we can do is make a peace treaty somehow and, and become their servants. It's a tough, tough place to be. Now, it's really interesting to me, and we made mention of this, I think it was last week, the connection between what's happening here with Saul and with the people of Jabesh Gilead and the last story we get in the book of Judges, in Judges 19, 20, and 21. It's one of the most horrendous, gross stories in the Bible showing how depraved a people can get when everybody does what's right in their own eyes and they don't serve the Lord. So I want to summarize because it's just too long to read through and really take in all the details, but I would encourage you to go back and look at it because there's connections between this story and what's happening here. And the men of Israel, you see, they, they came against the tribe of Benjamin, this little tribe in the middle of Israel, because what happened there was there was a Levite who had a concubine. And this concubine left him, and he went out looking for her, and he found her in the tribe of Ephraim, and he found her with her, uh, his father-in-law, her dad. And so he, he got her back, and they're traveling back home, and they get to the town of Gibeah in Benjamin at a late hour. And so they decide they're just going to stay the night there. But similar to Sodom and Gomorrah, the men of the town come out. And they end up abusing his concubine all night long until he, she dies. He actually gets up in the morning and says, all right, let's go. And she's dead at the doorstep. And it was a horrible, horrible thing that these men did. And so the Levite got upset, and he took his concubine, and he cut her up into 12 pieces. He dismembered her and sent a piece to throughout Israel. And of course, they were incensed at what had happened. And so they raised an army, and they said, anybody who doesn't join us in this fight against Benjamin, we're coming after you too. And then they went and they fought against Benjamin and they lost a couple of times. But then on the third occasion, they were so fired up about their losses and everything that had happened. They just, man, they let their passions get the best of them and they wiped everybody out except for 600 men of Benjamin. They killed 25,000 people and only 600 men were left in the whole tribe of Benjamin. And then they said, what have we done? We've completely wiped out one of our tribes. And so they said, oh man, well, we got to get wives for these 600 men left so that they can continue the tribe of Benjamin. What, what should we do? We, we've promised that we wouldn't give our daughters to Benjamin. That was part of the deal. They made this promise to themselves. And so they're bound by oath that they can't give their daughters. And so they go, oh wait, there was a town there was a town that didn't join us in the fight. 
It was Jabesh Gilead, the same place that we're talking about tonight. And so they got an army together and they went to Jabesh Gilead and they captured 400 women from Jabesh Gilead and they brought them and they gave them to the Benjamites to marry. So that covered 400 of the guys. That leaves 200 left. What do we do with these guys? And then they get this bright idea. Oh, I know over there in Shiloh, they have this festival and all the young unmarried women go out into the fields and they dance for their festival. We'll have those 200 guys go hide in the fields and when they come out to dance, they'll just grab themselves a wife. That's a great idea. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. And so it's like seven brides for seven brothers, you know? They go out and they, they just grab the woman they want in the fields and then that takes care of all the men of Benjamin and then they have their babies and have families and Benjamin becomes a tribe once again. Now, remember that the town that the Levite came to with his concubine was Gibeah. This is the town that Saul was from, Gibeah. Remember he said, Lord, why would you choose me? I'm from the least of the tribes and the least of the families. This is recent history for them. So here God is definitely doing something by calling the first king of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin from the town of Gibeah. Talk about the grace of God. The grace of God is beautiful. And now this town of Jabesh Gilead is being surrounded by Nahash the Ammonite and, and being demanding that they become his servants if they'll come out and he'll poke out their right eye. Now, why would he do that? Well, it says he wants to bring reproach on all Israel. So basically, he's just a jerk. <laughs> he's just a, you know, a guy who's full of himself. And, and if, you know, like, a, like any playground bully, if you make the other guy look bad, then it makes you feel stronger and more powerful. And so he wants to bring reproach on all Israel. But the right eye, too, would really incapacitate a man from fighting you know, it's kind of hard to fight with one eye if the other person has two. And, uh, and so this is just not a good thing. Now, we should really think that it's not a good idea to try to enter into an agreement with an enemy that hates you and wants to destroy you. And I think of Israel today. And I think of like Iran, who consistently says, we want to eliminate you. We want to drive you into the sea. We want you dead, all of you. We want all of you dead. And then, and then a lot of people in the world are saying, well, why don't you guys sit down and come into an agreement with each other? What kind of agreement can you come into when someone just hates you and wants to bring reproach upon you and, and wants you dead? And this is a picture of the enemy, friends. In fact, Nahash means serpent. And so right away we go, okay, Lord, what are you trying to say here? Well, I'm trying to say that Nahash is a type of the devil. And he's, he's, the devil comes against the, the people, God's creation. And he comes against the people of God. And he wants to bring us into slavery. 
And he wants to blind us to truth. And he wants to incapacitate us so that we will not fight the good fight and put on the full armor of God and enter into the fray. He wants to sideline us. He'd rather us sitting in a spiritual hospital than going out and wielding the sword and the shield. And so he tries to discourage us. He tries to, you know, get us to come into some kind of agreement with him. Anything other than fighting him, which is the only way to deal with the devil. If we don't stand up and fight him, he will destroy us, he will enslave us. We must fight, we must. And so here's these people, they've got this enemy, this Nahash serpent coming against them. You know, the devil seeks to blind us, to enslave us, to bring reproach upon us. He wants to blaspheme the name of God. John 10.10 says, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus says here, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. This is God's will for us as his kids is that we would have life and not just a regular, normal, ordinary survive life, but a thrive life. More abundant life, overflowing with the love of God, letting it spill out onto others around us, enjoying life because we're part of God who is the life giver, amen? 1 Peter 5.8 says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Boy, isn't Nahash a perfect picture of this? Coming against the people of Jabesh Gilead. So we can't negotiate with the devil or try to come into any kind of covenant with him. We must fight. We must fight and not give in. Now, of course, when I'm talking about this, you might think, well, how do you even negotiate with the devil? (laughs) You know, does he show up in a pitchfork and little horns and go, hey, let's sit down and let's talk, you know? No, No, but his lies are in our heads. And that's why the Bible says to take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. The devil's a liar. And so his negotiation, sometimes we don't even realize we're negotiating with the devil. But it's compromising. It's allowing compromises in our life. It's allowing things in our life that would be a substitute for God, we think. And then we just find ourselves in slavery to that thing. And God says, no. Don't be a slave to that. Be free. And whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And it requires a fight, but the battle belongs to the Lord. Amen? Hallelujah. Ephesians 6, 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God 
that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore. We're not going to talk about what the various pieces of armor are. You can find that if you read on in Ephesians 6. But the point here is fight. Fight. Let's not let the enemy surround us and then throw up our hands and go, hmm, nothing I can do about it. Might as well try and negotiate and just be a slave. No, fight. Fight temptation. Fight the lies of the enemy. You know, when I get lies from the enemy and I begin this negative self-talk and whatnot, I like to say to myself, wait a second, what does God say though? What does the Bible say? And we come back to truth. Truth. Verse 3, Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days, that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there was no one to save us, we will come out to you. Now you got to wonder, why in the world would Jabesh allow that to happen? (laughs) Okay, yeah, go see if anybody's going to help you. Instead of just saying, no, we're going to take you now. Well, this man is very prideful just like the devil, super prideful. And, and so if Jabesh Gilead sends out the messengers, then, then the people are gonna know Nahash's name, you know, and they're gonna fear him too. And so this is just a very arrogant man who really thinks he's got the upper hand and really doesn't think that anybody's gonna come to their help anyway. In fact, if you're Jabesh Gilead, And given the somewhat recent history that they've had with the rest of Israel, after all, Israel came in and stole 400 of their women and just took them, you might think they're not going to help us anyway. And by the way, the reason that they chose Jabesh Gilead is because Jabesh Gilead didn't come to fight against Benjamin with them. So like, hey, that's, that's the town that didn't fight with us. So let's, let's go, you know, let's be vengeful and vindictive towards them. So there's bad blood between Jabesh Gilead and the rest of Israel. Now, perhaps that isn't lasting at this time, but there is a history of it. And so the messengers go out. Verse 4, so the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul. Gibeah, where the concubine was violated. They come to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. So this grieved their heart that one of their own is being surrounded by the enemy and given this terrible option. And their response is just emotional and and to weep. It's kind of how the world, the Western world felt when Russia began to attack Ukraine and and the atrocities, the news of the different atrocities that were happening there. And so the people are just lifting up their voices and they're weeping. In verse 5, now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. (laughs) This just goes to show you his, you know, normal life that he's leading when he was called to be king and it's just like, well, what do I do now? And there he is, he's out in the field He's tending to the flock. He's, he's just having an ordinary day, wondering what in the world's next in life. And then it says he was coming behind the herd from the field, and Saul said, 
what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. Verse 6, then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. Oh, here comes the Spirit of the God. It's time, Saul. This is the opportunity. This is a setup. Sometimes, friends, it's a setup. When, when you start to look around at life and your circumstances, and you're going, man, things aren't looking good. Maybe it's just a financial hardship, beyond hardship. You're going to lose the house, what, whatever the case may be. Relationally, it, just so many things it can be, and you're just like, this is so bad. And there's no good choice. And God says, this is a setup. You cry out to me. You call upon my name. And you watch me do an incredible thing and give you an incredible victory in me. It's a setup. It's a setup. Boy, I see that happen in my life again and again. It's a setup, you know? I felt that really strongly um, before we moved back from Colorado to California where um, I was working uh, for a company called Philips. They were Spectranetics and they got bought by a big company called Philips. And, um, and so I was an hourly employee there and they worked me overtime a lot. You know, I go on these trips and they would pay me overtime for travel and everything. And, uh, and so there was this one month where I was away from the home 16 days in the month. I was working all kinds of overtime and it was in, I think it was in January, so it was gonna cover Christmas. Yes, I had already paid for Christmas, still needed money to cover for it, in case you can relate. And uh, so anyway, I was, you know, I had this in, in my head, I'm gonna get this. And then I got my check and there was no overtime on there. And I was like, what? I worked like 30 hours overtime in two weeks. <laughs> and I just called my boss right away and he's like, I don't know what's going on, I don't know. And, and then I found out that um, when we switched over from Spectronetics to Philips, they made me salaried without telling me. But it was, but they didn't, you know, adjust the wage. And so my boss went to bat for me and, and he said, oh, you know what, we're gonna have to make you... Um, salaried and I said okay what about all this overtime I worked well I'm going to work on this and we're going to try and get you paid retroactively and I said what about my wage going forward because I'm not you know I'm going to be working same hours but no overtime and uh and he said well why don't you come up with something let me know what you think I'm like <laughs> okay so I came up with something and he's like no way what are you talking about <laughs> but when <laughs> But it was a blessing at any rate. So, um, and, uh, but the, the cool thing about this whole thing was that during that time where I didn't know what was going to happen and I didn't get the pay I was expecting, I was just going, man, this is terrible. And, and inside I was just feeling angry. And I was trying, I kept trying to tell myself, you know what, this is a setup. This is a setup for something. And it turned out to be a setup because I did get a raise and they, they ended up paying me retroactively for that overtime. And so I got this, and then I got the bonus that year, and this big chunk of money came in. And it's like, oh, praise the Lord for this big 
chunk of money. What are we going to do with it? And then, and then uh, it's time to move back to California. <laughs> and we needed provision for that. And so God said, okay, take this money right here that I've given you and fix up your house in Colorado the way that you've always wanted it the whole time you live there and then move away from it. <laughs> Isn't God awesome? It was a setup. And so that's what we did. We fixed it up. We left. And then we rented it out as a short-term rental. It helped to subsidize living in California. You guys have any idea how expensive it is to live here? Or, <laughs> I mean, come on, people. It's crazy. And so it was such a blessing, that provision. But sometimes we can, in the moment when our bubble is burst and we don't understand what's happening and we're surrounded by the enemy and our options are let them come in and kill all of us or go out there and lose my right eye, God's going, it's a setup. And it was a setup so that Saul could have his day. You've been listening to Word and Spirit with Pastor James Beauvais of Calvary Anaheim in Anaheim, California. If you're in the area, we'd love for you to visit. Check out calvaryanaheim.org for location, service times, and more. We'd love to hear from you. To let us know how God has touched your life through this program or to submit a prayer request, simply go to calvaryanaheim.org and scroll down to the Get in Touch form at the bottom of the homepage. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to listen again next time for another edition of Word and Spirit with Pastor James Beauvais. This program is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Anaheim.